Well, to start our time, I actually wanted to take you back in time a little bit with me to the summer after my freshman year in college. Um, this actually turned out to be one of those kind of epic summers that you always remember. I got to go on a study abroad excursion to Israel for six weeks, and I got to take two classes while I was there. One was in archaeology, and the other one was history. Now, the archaeology class was incredibly fun and fascinating. It was all hands-on. We got up before the crack of dawn to make it to the dig site by 4 a.m. to start digging. So yes, a 19-year-old spent all summer playing in the dirt at 4 a.m. in another country. That was me. <laughs> But um, what we were doing with this archaeological dig and what I've learned about archaeology is that we are systematically and slowly uncovering the history that is buried in the ground below. And the archaeology that happens in this part of the world is mostly to actually either confirm or deny what we read in Scripture. And I would love to tell you more about what we were actually trying to confirm in Scripture because it actually connects to James, but I don't have time for that. But what I want to tell you about is something else I learned in this archaeological dig. As we slowly slowly, shovel by shovel full, pulled up history from the earth. I learned about a tool called a plumb line. Now, some of you may know what a plumb line is. It is just a weight on the end of a string. And if I was to stand here still enough, long enough, it would actually get really still. And with the help of, gr of gravity and with the help of this weight, it actually becomes a tool that tells me what is truly straight tells me what is straight down. And as you'll see, we were on the side of a hill. That was actually where I was that summer. And we were on the side of this hill. And so we've got the horizon, and then we've got the hill. And so we're trying to figure out what straight is because you need to go down systematically into these squares in the ground. It's kind of a whole grid system that they do in archeology. span And if we just eyeballed it, we would get off kilter pretty quick, wouldn't we? Have you ever tried to hang a picture without a level? You know what I'm talking about, right? We think things are straight, but they're not. And so we need a tool to help us know what is really straight. And to me, that is the perfect analogy for Bible study. This is the plumb line for our lives. This, God's truth and God's word, is a tool that helps us level back to what is true and right. See, often what we think is true and right is a little off kilter, right? But I actually don't want you to take my word for it. I want to back this up with two great men in scripture that speak to us from old into today. And the first one is Paul, and he says this in Romans 12:2. He says, "Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will." So let me break this down for you really quick. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Can we all agree that the pattern of this world is a little off-kilter? right? And Paul is saying, no, don't eyeball it. 
You need actually something that is going to bring you back to level, something that is true and right to measure your life by and to live your life by. So don't conform to the pattern of this world. You need something that is truer than the pattern of this world. And so then he says, but be transformed, which is to be made totally new from the inside out. And how does that happen? It happens by renewing our mind. It happens by putting what is true and right into our mind, which is God's word to us. And then we will be able to test and approve what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, we can't test, we can't test what is straight and true if we don't have a good measuring tool. And that good measuring tool is God's word for us. The other person that I want you to hear this morning from is Jesus. And he says this in John chapter 8, 31. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? This is another trick that the world plays on us. It likes to tell us that these words, well, they're either ancient and old and just shouldn't be listened to, or they're actually confining and rigid. And really, you wouldn't live your life by that, would you? And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. No, the words in this scriptures, the words in this book, when you know them and more than just know them, when you live by them, they bring you freedom. Freedom. That's a big promise he's making to us. And I don't know about you, but I need a little more freedom every day in my life. And if you think about it, that means that the opposite is true. So if we don't know the truth, that means we live in error. And the opposite of freedom is bondage. So truth equals freedom and error equals bondage. And so that's why I love that we gather together here in this place to study God's word together, to recalibrate our lives to what is true and right through the study of his word. And whether it's being reminded of something or whether it's learning something brand new for the first time, both of those things help us recalibrate and remember what is true and right. And then we can test and approve what his will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And so that's what we've gathered together to do. We've gathered together to open God's word, to dive in and to ask him, what do you have to teach me? How do you need me to recalibrate my life? And he has a lot to teach us. And so I just want to encourage you as you embark on this journey of 10 weeks together with the women at your table to make two commitments. And the first is to take this seriously, to make space in your life to study God's word. Because if those things are true, if what we just read in Romans and if what Jesus says to us in John is true, then doesn't it deserve our time and our effort to learn? And so make the time and effort to sit down and to read James thoughtfully, to go to the other scriptures that were led to by the author of our study. You know, James in my Bible is like two and a half pages of the entire Bible. It's two and a half pages in here five chapters, but there's so much meat in there for us to learn. And God has so much to teach us. And I'm excited to be on that journey with you. 
The second priority I want you to do is to make this space a priority to commit to coming here and carving out this time to be in community with these women around the table. Because when you're not here, we miss you. We actually need your voice to speak in to these truths, to help us wrestle with God's word together. Every single one of you is needed. God made no mistake when he brought you here and when he sat you at these tables. And so those are the two encouragements I have for you as you start this journey, to make studying his word a priority and to make being here a priority. Well, I want to talk a little bit about James. I want us to dive in a little to who he is and why he wrote this letter and what we're going to learn from him. It's really important before we start a study to know some of this context so that we can understand kind of what was going on then before we move to how do we make that applicable to our lives today. So um, if you'll turn to page three in your book, which is actually more like page six or seven because there's some Roman numeral pages ahead of it, we're going to walk through this outline. So we're going to start with who wrote the book of James? Any guesses? James, it seems pretty obvious, right? His name is on the book. (laughs) Obviously, James wrote it, and he starts the book out by saying this, James, (laughs) okay, he's the first word, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So yes, James wrote our book. However, James is a really common name in the New Testament. So just knowing who it is doesn't actually tell us much about him. Um, And so we need to actually dive down a little bit deeper to figure out which James is this. Because Jesus had two disciples named James, and then he had another disciple whose father was named James. So those three James, though, we've ruled out because they're either not mentioned again in scripture or they've died too early. So we kind of wipe all of them out. And that leaves us with our James, which is James, the brother of Jesus. So that is the author of our study, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, if you think about it, he's really more of a half-brother, right? Because Jesus is born to Mary and God. And James is born to Mary and Joseph. So they have the same mother, but they have a different father. Now, the other thing to note about James is that Jesus is obviously the oldest in the family. And James is the next oldest in the family. So he's the oldest younger brother to Jesus. Now, scholars have narrowed it down to James for a couple of reasons, and two of the primary ones that I'll share with you are this. First of all, he was a prominent voice in the early church. So what we know about James is that he led the church in Jerusalem. This is where the church was born, in the city of Jerusalem. And that meant that this was the first church This was the church that all of the other little churches that were scattered around, those 12 tribes that he's writing to, scattered, are looking back to the church in Jerusalem to kind of set the pace, to answer some questions. And so he is a prominent leader. It makes sense that he would have some exhortations for us and for the early church. The second reason that we believe James is the author of our letter is because he writes a short little dialogue in Acts 15. Now, Acts 15 is actually a really important thing that happens in the early life of the church. It's called the Jerusalem Council. 
And basically what's happening is the early church of converted Jews that have now become Christians are starting to really question, what about these Gentiles? How do they come to be Christians as well. And so they pulled everyone together and they had a huge meeting about it, which is the Jerusalem Council. And in that, James is one of the predominant leaders in the Jerusalem Council. And uh, scholars have analyzed the short little speech that he gives in Acts 15, and they've noticed that there are very similar linguistic patterns between what he says in Acts 15 and what he writes in his book. So that's a second big piece of evidence for why James, the brother of Jesus, is our author. So I want to talk about this James a little bit, because scripture tells us that James did not always believe that his older brother was the savior of the world. Can you blame him? Right? <laughs> Does anyone have a sibling in the room? Can you imagine if they started saying that they were the savior of the world? Can you imagine if that annoyingly perfect behavior was really perfect, right? So I know that James wrestled with this and I can only imagine all of that that went into it. So what I want us to do is I want to take us a on a quick journey through a couple of verses of scripture so that you can see where James was and where he moves to. Uh, And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go on this journey with me in your Bible. Uh, Of course, you can do it on your screen or device, um, but we'll also have it up there. Okay, so we're going to start in Mark chapter 3. Let me tell you what's happening in Mark chapter 3. This is at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And um, he's been healing people, he's been doing all of these amazing things, and crowds are starting to take notice of him, and they're starting to gather around him. Um, And then this happens. In verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And his family heard about this. They went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind right? He is out of his mind. Like if my sister started saying that she was the savior of the world, I would say the exact same thing. She has lost her mind. And that's what they think right now. So they feel like he's delusional, crazy. That's the best case scenario at this point. (laughs) Well, now let's go to John seven. This is a little bit later in Jesus's ministry. Um, And in fact, many people have started following Jesus at this point. He's been teaching against uh, what the Jewish leaders are teaching in this time. And the Jewish leaders have gotten so frustrated with him that they've actually just decided they want him dead. So Jesus now has a death warrant out for him. And um, some of the people that had been following Jesus right before this passage is written have scattered. They're like, you know what? not going to do this. I'm out. (laughs) Uh, His disciples have stuck with him, but a lot of the people on the periphery are gone because they're scared. So that's what's happening in John chapter seven, starting in verse one, it says this, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus's brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. 
And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Did you catch that? He doesn't want to go to Judea because he knows that he could probably be killed. And his brothers say, hey, you should go to Judea. It's like, hey, why don't you go run across 635 in the middle of rush hour and let's just see what happens, Jesus. It is more than just doubt. It's actually turned into hostility and hatred at this point. But then something happens. Something happens to James that moves him from this place of hostility to this place of surrender and belief. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 and let's see what that is. Now in this passage, Paul is recounting and reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel. Okay, so it's a a little bit longer, so hang with me here. Starting in verse one, he says, now brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now pay attention to this that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12 disciples, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to who? James. Then he appeared to his brother, James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me as one abnormally born. See, James had an interaction and an encounter with the risen Jesus, and everything changed. He saw Jesus die, and now he sees that he is alive, and everything changes for him. He had to deconstruct all of what he believed about Jesus as brother who has now become his Lord. I cannot even imagine what that must have been like for him. But I wanna take you to one last place before we finish our journey, just to let you know that it wasn't just belief. And this is in Acts chapter one. So what's happened here is Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He's, he's died, he's resurrected, he's appeared to all of these people, and now he has gone into heaven. And this is what happens starting in verse 12. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives on a Sabbath day's walk. That just means it was close by from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, This is not our James. This is James, one of the disciples. And Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, not our James. And Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, also not our James. Didn't I tell you? There's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. (laughs) And they all join together constantly in prayer. They join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who? with his brothers. See, James then joined those who believed in Jesus constantly in prayer. Not only was his life changed, but how he lived was changed. 
And so this is James, a man who is radically converted and transformed and who gives his entire life to serve Jesus and further the gospel message. The reason I wanted you to know all of this and the reason why I think it is important is because as you read the book of James, I want you to know James is a man who walked the walk and talked the talk. He didn't just write this book to us from some cushy chair on high overlooking the city. No, he was in the depths of what he's writing about. He went first. And so when he exhorts you and I to live differently, know that he lived this way. And so to me, that gives him so much credibility. It wasn't easy for him. In fact, it was incredibly hard for him. He lived in a time when the church was severely persecuted. In fact, he was killed for his faith. He was martyred and actually suffered a very brutal death. This is our James. Okay, let's move on. When was it written? We'll go through the rest of these pretty quick. So when was it written? Well, whenever we're dating a letter, it's a little bit of a if then that then that kind of puzzle mystery that we've got to put together. Um, and so here's a few things that we know. James is written to a church that is facing persecution or to the believers that are facing persecution. And we know that the persecution started in AD 44. We also know, I told you about the Jerusalem council that happened in Acts 15. That happened around AD 49. Now, James doesn't mention the Jerusalem council, and that seems very odd because it was such a big moment for the life of the early church. And so what we then say is because he didn't say anything, that means it was written before AD 49. So sometime between 44 and 49 is when we would date the book. Now, when we date the book in that time range, it means that this is one of the very first letters written to us in the New Testament perhaps the first letter written to us in the New Testament. Okay, so to whom was it written? Well, let's go back again to James 1.1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just take a moment to note how he addresses his brother now. Lord Jesus Christ. He's no longer his brother. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So James is written to these 12 tribes that have scattered. And basically, these are Jewish Christians. These are Jews that have converted to Christianity. And they have been scattered. And so he is writing to them to encourage them because they are being persecuted. Okay, so in what style was it written? Well, as you'll start to read and dig into James, you'll notice that there's a lot of these short exhortations to us about how we should live wisely. Let me give you a few examples. He says, keep a tight rein on your tongue. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He also says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Or how about this one? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's just a small handful of some of these little pithy statements that he will say. And so when we look at James in this way, we also note that it is very similar to Old Testament wisdom literature. It has a little bit of a Proverbs type feel to it. And so we can say that James is New Testament wisdom literature. 
Okay, so what are the central themes of the letter? Well, if you look right up at the top of your page, living a life of genuine faith, I would say that is the central theme of your letter, of this letter, living a life of genuine faith. Genuine means it is authentic and it is true. It is what it says it is. And how we prove that our faith is authentic and true, how we prove that we are followers of Jesus is that we're actually following him. That is genuine faith. And James is also writing, as I said, to a persecuted church. And so much of what he writes is for living up under trials and suffering when things are not going well. So those are some of the main themes of the letter. But I think it's important to go back to one more thing before we wrap this up. And that is, again, to whom it was written. It is written to Christians. And we must keep this in mind when we read James. The people that are reading this book, the people that James is addressing, already have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And if we take Jesus out of this letter, it becomes moralistic and it becomes legalistic. If we take Jesus out, it becomes a list of do's and don'ts. And it gets dangerous really fast. And so we've got to remember to balance James' teaching with what we know in the rest of Scripture. This is taking the whole counsel of God. We can't just rip anything out without considering the entire context of Scripture. One of the contexts of Scripture that we need to balance this with is Paul's teaching to us on salvation by grace through faith. Let me remind you of this passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we balance the teaching of James with the teaching of Paul. See, we are saved by faith alone. And any of these exhortations that James has for us about maybe how we should correct the way we're living or how we should do something differently is not to earn anything from God. We are in right standing with him simply by our faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. So we read James with that in mind. Otherwise, it becomes a to-do list, a box-checking thing of legalism that we will not bear up under. It will crush us. So we must remember that these exhortations to right living are within the context of grace and who we are. I think Martin Luther, who wrote a few centuries ago, says it best. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. See, what Jesus has done for us There is only one right response, and that is to live the way he is inviting us to live. Remember, he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. That's what he invites us to. That's what James invites us to. So when he says we should keep control over our tongues, it's not to prevent us from having fun. It's actually to lead us into freedom. When he says that we need to pray or when he says we need to have joy in suffering, it's not for anything other than that is where we find freedom. So I just want to encourage you as you study the book of James this semester to let God teach you, to let him possibly correct you. 
He has much to teach us through his word. But I promise, if you feel corrected by him, and if you move your life and adjust to what he is asking you to, this plumb line of truth, you will find freedom. That is what he promises us. There is freedom in right living. Let me pray for us as we start this journey. So Lord Jesus, we come to you in all different places on the journey. Some of us aren't even sure really what to believe about you. And so Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? I pray that you would help us to study your word with diligence. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to truth in your word. Lord, that you would lead us to freedom as we learn how to live rightly, as we learn how to live our faith in a genuine way. And Lord, I pray for this community of women. I pray for the connections around tables, Lord, to be deep and rich and safe and meaningful. And Lord, we will give you the glory for the work that you do. So right now we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.